Good morning. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Kicking off today's show is Peter Orner, and he's the author of Still No Word from You. I want to share a little bit about him before we bring him on. He's the author of two novels and three short story collections. His previous collection of essays, Am I Alone Here?, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. A three-time recipient of the Pushcart Prize, Orner has been published in the Best American Short Stories, The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, uh, Granta, and McSweeney's, and his work has been translated into eight languages. He was awarded the Rome Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Landman Literary Fellowship, and a Fulbright Warner is the director of creative writing at Dartmouth College and lives with his family in Norwich, Vermont. Good morning, Peter. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Janine. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You have quite the list of accomplishments. <laughs> Thanks. Amazing and humble, I know. <laughs> we spoke previously. <laughs> right. uh, congratulations. I heard your book's coming out today or tomorrow? I believe the pub date, official pub date is tomorrow. Very yeah, exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Still no yeah. word from you. How did this work come about? I primarily consider myself a fiction writer, okay. and uh, that's what I do. That's like my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I often find, you know, I'm, I'm stuck a lot of times um, on a story and on invention, and I, sure. uh, I fall back on on memory. And mm-hmm. this book very much is about uh, memory and how memory is, you know, excited by, inspired by what we read. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting you you describe it as that because do you find that as you're writing something else and you get stuck, you think of an idea for another project? Oh, I mean, it happens All the time. three times this morning, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they're even better in the first one that you're stuck on. Totally, but the problem is then you pursue that one and then there's another one and yes. there's another one and there's another one. And, exactly. You know. uh, what has it been like for you uh, writing in the pandemic? I lived for many years in San Francisco, um, but about four years ago I moved to um, rural Vermont. Um, and, you know, it was a very different for us up here, you know. Um, I, think we got it, I think we got off easy. Um, however, there were those, you know, rough months where everything was on lockdown and sure. um, the governor issued a, you know, a decree saying, you know, only essential workers could move around, things like that. And I, I can't work at home, so I had to go to my studio <laughs> so I would sneak <laughs> Um, sneak into White River Junction, That's sort of, funny. and uh, and and work in a, um, my studio, which is in an old railroad hotel, and I was the only one there you know, for hours and hours at a time, and uh, it was a strange experience. And I kind of these these essays sort of grew out of that. Amazing, being alone. It's an interesting thing being alone. I like being alone, but then when you're alone too long, you crave people. But then you're with people, and you want to be alone, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, Did I it, nail that, that sums up my life. <laughs> yeah, it's a well. I also find that the more people I talk to that are writers, that are creatives, uh, we we definitely crave to be alone, and and we go into this flow state. We find ourselves, you know, having this mental vacation. I call it. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think of this Neil Young song where he talks about there's a party down the road, but he can't he can't go because he's busy writing a song mm, um, yeah. you know, I, I think and I think part of the tension and maybe why the song turned out well is because of that Relatable. desire to not be there you know? yes so. yes and do you have people that say to you oh you must be so creative during lockdown and 
sometimes that's not the case. You're kind of stuck. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, I, I, this book was written because I had another book I had to write and, um, it happens, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was, I was having trouble. I was having trouble sort of imagining the scenes that are, again, are sort of my day job. And right. I, I just started to just remember things, um, day after day I would sit, you know, before I went to work, before I got to work, mm-hmm. I would, I would, I would read and then I would sort of riff off what I'd read and oftentimes that would lead me to um, some kind of memory about, you know, my grandfather, my grandmother, uh, my parents, my brother, et cetera. Amazing. So tell me the process, how this all came about. Well, you know, it's my, it's my second book of, of nonfiction, and I swore to myself and to other people who didn't believe me that I would never do it again, that I would never write like a memoir type Why? book again. Why is that? Because it felt... You know, I felt a little bit like cheating. Like I wasn't, again, like, you know, I think of myself as like, I'm a storyteller, I make stuff up, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and you know, I've always felt a little bit like there was a hierarchy, which is ridiculous, I realize, but yeah. but it's just sort of how I operate. So, you know, I, I felt like I'd done that. I had written a, a book called Am I Alone Here, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, is a book of essays that that this this new book is similar to, but I hope... Anyway, my own concept of it is that it has more unity. That the, that the that the essays speak to each other. That this is a that this is not a collection necessarily. It's a it's a whole thing. That's, That's my great idea. Now at Dartmouth, you primarily teach fiction writing, or do you teach both nonfiction and fiction? I do both. I mean, I I you know I I always things always bleed into into other things, but primarily fiction. I teach um, literature classes, which is my favorite thing to do. Um, you know, I, 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 I've always been a little bit wary of sort of teaching writing directly, right? I, I, I teach writing through, through reading, okay. um, which is really just my whole general philosophy. And so um, if I encourage my students to read really closely and slowly, I know that's going to help them with their writing. It helps me. Yes. What is your process for teaching them nonfiction? Is it more, again, read different authors, or is it also trying to unpack some of their life experiences? Yeah, it's both. I mean, I, te- I teach this class called, I call it Uses of Fact, where it, it, it involves uh, works of art, poetry, nonfiction, fiction, photography, plays, all of which... And you know it's such a broad class I could teach anything, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. but it all of which has some root in like actual fact, okay. right? And so um, you know I, I what I what I try and encourage them is to sort of like when they're telling their own stories, radiate off of of their own facts, and then use your imagination to take it where 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 it will. And it may take you into fiction, it may take you into some other place, but. What is it about sort of a, a fact? And just one example I'd give is there's a, a Albert Sachs Awakenings, right? Mm-hmm. Famous book of nonfiction. Harold Pinter wrote a play off of it, using that using that fact, right? Using that yeah. actual what what Sachs had been through with um, dopamine and this drug that made these people who'd been asleep all those years suddenly wake up, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was just fascinated by by Pinter using that as his own springboard for his own creativity. Yes. So that's kind of the concept of that class. Yes. Well, I think, especially teaching students right now how to express themselves through writing is so important considering uh, the rates of anxiety, depression, 
you know, suicidal yeah. ideation, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what you're doing is incredible. Well, well, thank you. I mean, I think I, I know I know you're working on your own work that deals with a lot of the stuff too, and I, yeah. I think that you know all we can do is sort of. I mean, there's no answer to any of it, but it, I, I think I think sometimes writing can be a bulwark of sorts. Mm-hmm. You know, can can be comforting um, to the writer and to the reader. I, I've, all, I've I've chafed for a long many years about writing as sort of therapy kind of thing. I still do a little bit. Okay. But I'm 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 lightening up on that. Not not necessarily as therapy, but it's like this idea that it's going to be an answer. I don't think we're going to find an answer, but I think in the process, yes, we're going to get somewhere. I think just the act of putting your backstory on the page and and finishing something and putting it on the shelf opens you up to kind of put the past in perspective and move forward. Oftentimes. Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think so. So tell me more about this book. Well, it's um it rotates between personal memories and, you know, again, you know, family material a lot of things I've actually written about before that I wanted to revisit. You know, I'm, I'm sort of haunted by the family stories that we tell within families that we tell and tell and tell, right? Mm-hmm. We, and we don't tell them because we don't know the stories, right? We tell them because sure. of a certain joy, comfort, horror even, oftentimes, right? Yes. Um, in, in the retelling. And so a lot of the stories that I tell in this book are ones that I've tried in other books, or, okay. and, and ones that I've tried daily to tell, just to my family and friends. And what I found was, is if I integrated the idea of what I was reading mm-hmm. as a way of sort of retelling these stories, I would tell them in a different way. And so the book okay. rotates between, again, sort of these family stories, personal stories that have to do with me, and the books I'm reading that sort of help me tell those stories in a new light. Interesting. Were you close with your grandfather? I was. I was very close. Yeah. What are your, yeah. some of your memories growing up of things that you did together? You know, I, I talk about he, he. I talk about in the book. He 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 was sort of a hail fellow, well met kind of guy. You know, he was a he was a banker, and he was you know he had a certain kind of you know kind of joyful way, jolly way of interacting with people. Nice. Um, but there was also another side. There was, a, I think, a great deal of loneliness um, in his life. And after he died and after my grandmother died, I found a, a plastic bag. It was a Carson Peary Scott bag, a department store in Chicago. <laughs> um, and it was filled with letters from, that my grandfather, who was a ship captain in World War II, had written to my grandmother back in Chicago. And oh. what I realized is that um, these letters were written every single day, dated <gasps> the entire time he was gone. It's pretty dramatic. And uh, a refrain in these letters was that she wasn't writing him back. Um, and why was that, Peter? Why was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's lots of theories, right? I mean, you know, my family, we talk about this. It's yeah. sort of, you know, a little bit of a mystery. Um, my grandmother had two kids to raise. Yeah. Uh, she was a dancer, professional. In Chicago, she was busy. She was busy. Um, yeah. yeah, and that's one part of it. And the other part is, you know, I, I think maybe she didn't know what to say. You know, mm-hmm. maybe she she was just so removed from what he was experiencing that she had no comfort to give. I, it's mm-hmm. hard to say. But they were uh, estranged much of their life together, frankly, even though they, they never separated. 
Um, okay. I always, uh, the, the separate beds was a clue for me, you know, like Rob and Laura Petrie's bedroom, but they seem to have more fun, those two, than my uh, grandparents. How sure. long were they apart while he was, uh, you know, away? Is it, you're talking he about? was in uh, the South Pacific for about two and a half years. He okay. was um, actually quite old. He, he wasn't drafted or anything like that. He was, he volunteered. He volunteered for the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. and he patrolled the... Uh, the Calumet River in Chicago, looking for Nazis. And the joke in our family is he did that so well, they, they brought him to the South Pacific where he had uh, uh. certain uh, uh, skills that the, that the Navy needed. And he was quite a good captain. Okay. And, uh, you know, he saw some action. And, um, you know, he was gone for about two and a half years while, you know, my, again, my grandmother and my father and my aunt were um, living in Chicago and living their lives without him. And I, I think that they kind of moved on in a way you yes. know, from him. Yes. I think that was hard for him. Yeah. Well, your grandmother must have been in her 20s. Uh, yeah. I mean, a little bit older at that time, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She got married very young. Um, you're right. I mean, she would have been 26, 27, 28. Yeah. 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 What, um, what would you like listeners to know about the book? Maybe you want to talk about your process? Sure. I mean, it's, you know, we talked a little bit about this before. It's, I, I, this is my seventh book, and I, I every time I always fumble like, like how to how to describe it. You know what I mean? I always feel like, well, you know, if I, if I could do that, I wouldn't have written it, right? Yes. But um, you know, I, I I think the book is for readers. You know, and 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 you know, I'm always looking for a book. I had a friend once who said, you know, write the book you want to read. You know, yeah, and I've, I've always that. thought that was good advice. Yeah, that is good um, advice. And and you know, this book is a book for people who who like to read slowly and patiently and um, without a lot of noise, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's a, it's a book for, for those people. Um, and it's a book for people who, who maybe will think about a scene in a novel or a short story and they'll sort of just return, keep returning to that scene, um, which is something I do, you know, I, I'm reading uh, to the lighthouse right now okay. for the 19th millionth time. <laughs> and I'm all, I'm struck always by the scene where Mrs. Ramsey is at the head of the table, and there's I, I believe like 15 people around the table, and wow. Wolf is somehow able to control that chaos. And I'm just always amazed by that. And I, and so, you know, I have a couple of essays about Wolf in in this book, um, where I try to imagine what she was thinking about when she was trying to imagine her process. Yes. You know, and I do that uh, a great deal if, with many of the writers that I talk about. Were you a writer growing up as a teenager? Um, it was the only thing I've ever really been able to, um, to do. I thought so. I was so. a mediocre athlete. I was a mediocre math student. I was a mediocre science student. But um, I could somehow write a story. Not, not. That I could never file an assignment. You know, <laughs> I wasn't exactly. <laughs> it didn't endear I, myself. I to agree. Me, but they right knew I had something you. going on. Yeah. And then when you uh, went off to college, did you work on the school newspaper? I mean, how did this blossom? I did. I, I actually, I did. I, I didn't really go to class. I went to the University of Michigan um, mm-hmm. years ago, and I was on the Michigan Daily, which was basically like a full-time job, and we were a daily newspaper. <laughs> it was amazing oh. that they saw it. Like, and we were almost like the equivalent of like student-athletes that don't have time for school. Like, we yes. didn't have time for school. We were putting out a paper. So I think that, so that helped my chops in terms of like, look, you gotta, you got to do this every day. got to work. It's sentence, and then another sentence, and then another sentence. And you got to communicate with people. Definitely. Any advice you give people that are struggling with their writing? Yes. I mean, 
it's funny, like people always love to give advice, right? Especially yeah. like somebody teaches writing, like I got advice, yeah. right? But you know, I I counsel I, patience, like not, you know, I think mm-hmm. we get ahead of ourselves. I do it every day. I get ahead, mm-hmm. right? I'm always like, well, what's the what's the upshot of this story I'm writing? And if I just say, like, you know what? Maybe there doesn't need to be an upshot yet. Maybe I just need to describe how the person's sitting. Yeah. You know, maybe I need to just describe how they. You know, how they, how they, uh, I'm doing right now, I'm putting my hand on my cheek. I mean, what is that, you know, what is that, right. how does that change someone's facial expression? Yes. You know, just, just the, the, the smallest of things, I think. Um, Little nuances. Just, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, not, not, not going crazy with it, but just taking it easy on yourself and, and, and allowing yourself to, to, to see in a slower way. If that makes any sense. No, it does to me uh, because I also am a screenwriter and mm. I feel like you write in a visual sense and you, again, before there's words on the paper, you're describing the scene and this, the, the subtle nonverbal behaviors that might mean something. Yeah, right? I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, we're, you know, when we write fiction or nonfiction, we're, you know, we, we are screenwriters. You mm-hmm. know, we, we're creating a visual picture. You know, we need to we need to just account for all of those things that maybe a screenwriter, when you're writing a screenwriter play, you maybe not don't actually say, but you see. You see. And yes. I think you know, in our case, you know, in, in when you're doing this kind of writing, you, you there's this other responsibility. I think it's just different, you it's, know. But yes. it, I think they're very similar. Yes, I I in the material that was sent along with this book, I love your response. You talk about. Between the news and the daily pace of our lives, every day feels like we're moving faster. I think this almost frantic approach to life leaks into the way we read. I've got to constantly remind myself to take it easy, to breathe, to take a sentence, to take a sentence one at a time. I read a lot of poetry. You can't read a poem fast, not a good one. I like that. So true. Yeah, totally. I mean, just you can't try it. You know, everybody, your listeners, I mean, you can't read a poem fast. Otherwise, it won't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And and even then, as we all know, it's not easy. I'm not somebody who's you know who's always getting what I'm reading. You know, and I don't think actually the I don't think that's necessarily the most important thing to you know to like get it like as information, right? Yes. How about get it as a sense of you know feeling, as a sense of emotion that is not necessarily perfectly um, uh, expressed. I mean, I, I often tell my students and I tell myself, like, it's not about getting it right. It's about trying. It's about attempting. Yes. Um, Peter, one of the best things a teacher ever said to me, my 15-year-old writing teacher, she taught creative writing, was there are no wrong answers in creative writing. And, exactly. And it just really s- struck me because everything else was about academics and I wasn't doing well. Right. That's threatening, though, isn't it? If yes. there are no wrong answers, then what do you do? <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's like, I yeah. think this is, a, I mean, I find my students, it, it scares them a little bit. It frees them up, but it also is kind of scared, don't you think? Uh, yes, yes, but but it does for, for people that feel um, they don't thrive in other subjects. Yeah. Um, I always bring up Howard Gardner with the seven different types of intelligences, and mm-hmm. I just feel like, you know, I wasn't a math person, but I was the creative person or the music person. And I, I like students to see that there are other types of intelligence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and the, that are valued. And, yes. And I think we don't, we certainly don't see that on an everyday basis. You know? 
Now, one thing that surprised me about you, I, I can't believe your reading habit is um, haphazard, that you actually will read a book in the middle. <laughs> You'll just jump into the middle of the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I just think we, like, I think we make too big a deal about, you know, kind of like doing things the right way. Oh, I, I mean, know. Who says you can't? You know exactly. what I mean? And like, yes. I, and like, I mean, I always, I get, I get a little bit, my hackles get raised when people are like, well, you have to read that, you have to read that, you have to read that, like, and as if it's systematic, mm-hmm. as, if, as if human experience is somehow uh, uh, quantifiable. I read what I want to read, and I read contemporary, I read old, I read across culture, I read a lot in translation. I'm constantly trying to just, you know, connect. Yeah. And I think that if we make rules there, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe it isn't the best thing to start a book in the middle. I don't want anyone to start mine no, in the I middle. Know. But, yeah. you know, I, I, think, I just think we've got to, like, take, the, um, take the, any kind of academic sense about this. Right, that there are any kind of rules, right? I mean, I will, yeah, I will open a book for a scene, read a scene, and I'll be oh, like, yeah. damn, that's awesome. Yes. You know? Sure, to get a sense of the book. Yeah. Um, by the way, in your book, what caught my eye was you mentioned the blizzard of 78, which actually took place January 79, and I remember yes. that blizzard. Yes, yes. It was, uh, you know, quite a, quite a thing in Chicago, for sure. I mean, everything was at a standstill. And um, I, you know, the my mother told me the story of driving home on the um, the Kennedy Expressway and literally the car just stopping. I mean, the snow was that thick, and she had to um, yeah. climb out of the car and walk off the expressway and find a, a gas station to spend the night in. Wow. And, um, you know, I just was, you know, I hadn't heard that story before. It was a couple years ago when she told me. And, you know, I mean, I, I wonder, like, why certain stories take long for us to hear. You know what I mean? It just happened yeah. to be that we were on, we were on the Kennedy, and my mother saw a certain exit, mm-hmm. and she said, "Oh, you know, it makes me think of that night I spent in the gas station." I was like, "What? Spent a night in the gas station?" And yeah. so, um, you know, the book is full of things like that 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 either happened, you know, because somebody mentioned something at a certain time, or again, because I, you know, read in a, you know, Lorraine Hansberry play something that struck my attention and made me think about that, but also made me remember something else. But one thing that stands out to me is the fact that I think we should all reach out to older relatives and tap into their stories and maybe even record them because those are interesting, surprising moments. Absolutely. I mean, for me, they're they're my you know that's my that's my work is mm-hmm. to um, to mine um, hopefully respectfully um, the memories of, of people who've come before. Where can people find out more about you, Peter? Um. I have a website that I sometimes update <laughs> when I when I can remember the passcode. Okay, uh, it's uh, peterorner dot com, and uh, you know the book is available in um, any bookstore uh, around, and certainly online. And um, you know I'm out there, not not too hard to find. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I want to thank you so much. And for anyone tuning in a little late, I will have the podcast up on the show blog, which is. Get the funk out show dot KUCI dot org. I know you're laughing. <laughs> great, great. The best title ever. Thank you so much. All right, I'll be in touch and congratulations. Great. Thank you, Gina. I really appreciate it. A really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. That was Peter Orner calling in to talk about his book, Still No Word from You, which will be out tomorrow. And if you missed any part of the conversation, again, it'll be up on the show blog within an hour. But right now I have all the information about Peter and his book. 
and you can read up on that as well. We're going to take a little break, and then I'm going to re-air a conversation I had with the authors of Eruption about the uh, life of Eddie Van Halen, because it marks the two-year anniversary since his passing. Uh, this is my conversation with Brad Talinsky, author of Light and Shade, and Chris Gill. And if you visit the show blog, you can uh, actually watch the video of our conversation and learn more about it. If you want to find out about being a guest, you can send me an email to Janine, that's J-A-N-E-A-N-E, at KUCI.org. Thank you. 